Hello listeners and welcome to the AfriWetter podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu to world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu to episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we're headed back to Southern Africa for part 2 of the Undi Kingdom. A shout out to my Southern Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your borders. Before we begin, Please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at @afriwetu where we shall be posting interesting facts, stories, updates and links for further study for all you lovely people. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. Hakumulela nani mwanayo anzanga angombe ambea ndikumanya ngoko soka soka Akolo akendani mwana yu anzanga Akumango choka ni kumango mwela mbanda kucha Misinko yake itabindi kina mapunziro Iendi kasu wakumunda kusaka mbewa Mbewa Awo wanzake watabindi kina mapunziro Iendi keni wakudimba So, as usual, as you now know, we start with getting out our maps to track where we are today. So, let's start by heading down over to the southeastern shores of Mozambique. There you'll start to then trace and head into the interior of the continent as this kingdom at its height covered a region that spread from Mano in modern day Mozambique which was its capital right through to Zambia through Malawi and it was nestled in the larger Moravi empire but as its own polity so now before we start start for those of you who have yet to but i'm sure you will listen to part 1 of this kingdom let me share the briefest of recaps for you like a 2 minute tour so that you are all up to speed So last time we looked at the origin of the kingdom remembering that it stemmed out of a dispute in the royal clan within the Moravian Empire the version that I prefer that led to the Undi the brother of the Kalonga who was the ruler of the Moravi leaving to set up his own kingdom We then covered that what the governance looked like for the Undi noting that there that here there were very strong familial ties but that there were also checks and balances through the function of a council Lastly we spoke of the religion and society and paid special attention to the Makewana the revered spiritual leader across the Moravi who had a close relationship with the Undi kingdom she'll come up again when we look at the demise of this kingdom and now you're all caught up so let's head over and take a swift look at the trade and the economy of the kingdom So the main external trade was in ivory which was closely controlled by the Undi himself. 
So this is where he got most of his tribute paid to him. This trade brought in loads of wealth and contributed a great deal to the kingdom's expansion. Another of the big ticket items that brought in the wealth included gold as well as iron. The latter was manufactured within the region. And as time progressed, later on, in the 1700s, the kingdom got involved in the practice of selling indentured men and women. The main trading partners were at first with those from the East African coast, namely the African Swahili and the Arab traders. And then in later years, the trade expanded and opened up to the Europeans. Trade, especially that of indentured people, was initially very lucrative for Undi, seeing as he did control it from the center. But, as can be expected, in time, with other chiefs, they started to initiate their own deals in order to also grow their own wealth and their own polities. This division of wealth did actually play a part in weakening the Undi's position in the long run. But even then, the slave trade in itself became a drain on the region, if not to say just the soul of the continent, for the very simple reason that it resulted in the decimation of communities. First, from further lands, but soon enough, it was their own people whose villages were being raided due to the insatiable appetite from the European slavers. It basically, like in West Africa, cursed and became a rot to Africans. So let's leave this here and let's look at the expansion before we go back to this as a factor in the eventual demise of this kingdom. The Undi's kingdom's existence was a direct result of the expansion of the overall Maravi Empire. Undi, plus other Firi royals, set out from Mantimba under various guises to set up their own polities and conquer the lands around while still maintaining a tributary relationship with the Kalonga. For our purposes, our Undi, in the course of his journey, installed and left his own loyal and royal followers along the way, expanding his territory before he had even settled in Mano. Quite a smart move. But his expansion didn't then stop once he was settled. He continued in his conquests, and to do so, he needed wealth. And to gain this wealth, he needed to spend money to get money right? So he leveraged on the ivory trade initially, as we saw, to fund these campaigns. He also used his own kins, his nephews, to conquer lands on his behalf. What was interesting about this tactic was that he used it as a way to also resolve conflict within the nobility. Succession problems, anybody? When there was a hot issue of lineage conflict, the male kings would then be granted a higher rank, would be granted higher ranking titles, and then were sent and to go forth and get their own polities. Problem solved. Well, at least for a time. I mean, though, to be fair, it's kind of genius, though, right? Anyway, further to this, it would also mean that being as it was that a lot of the land was either under an undi or his nephews, then at some point it is conceivable to imagine that a large number of the tributary chiefs were related or at the very least had a close bond with the undi. So this activity, his own actions and that of his kin, saw the kingdom expand taking in both the Chewa and non-Chewa territory. As an example of this, in the mid-1600s and by about 1640, 
the Undi territory covered the area towards the northwest Nsenga lands, and these lands fell after the conquest of the Mwanza clan, Mundi Kula. This campaign was one of those led by the Undi's kin that we just spoke of, and in this case, it was a tributary chief, Chimuela. Once this Nsenga territory fell, the other Nsenga chiefs were easier to conquer, offering less resistance. Another significant win, because this was quite significant and that's why it's being mentioned, but another one was over the Tawara along the Zambezi as one of the key triumphs. And these two examples, there's so many more, show the strength of the Undi, because these were not pushover states, I promise you. The kingdom continued to solidify its hold over its lands along the Kapuchi River, north of the Tete area, and then went ahead to claim territories in the lower Luangwe River to the west. Once territory was actually absorbed into the kingdom, they became part of this decentralized kingdom. The new, and in some cases where they left the local rulers, were able to maintain a level of autonomy and could actually run their own polities their way as long as they paid tribute to the Undi in the form of mainly ivory, harvest, and indentured Africans. This process of expansion was effective and after at least one and a bit centuries, the Undi kingdom was sizable and a major player in the region that is now Southern Africa. So how is it that this kingdom, which was one of the most successful expansionist states of the Maravi Empire, how did it fall? Well, let's have a look as we head into the last section, the demise. Before we delve into this, just a quick note for you all. It's worth keeping in mind that the demise of the Undi Kingdom as its own part of the Maravi Empire contributed to the overall empire's fall. It was one of the strongholds and the attacks to the Maravi as a whole was an attack on the Undi as well. But for the purposes of this episode, I shall highlight those that directly impacted the Undi. So like many other great civilizations, there's not one singular thing that brought down the Undi kingdom. Instead, we can trace a mix of structural and political reasons. And because I know you Afriwatu are pretty clued in and focused, you will remember a mention of the Makewana's own ambitions and her refusal to be led solely by the Undi from part one. Then, we also have the wealth of the Undi being depleted, as we spoke of earlier, as his trade routes and deals were being interfered with by his subordinate chiefs. And then on top of that, the decline of the tribute from these same chiefs, because now they're making their own money, they were independent. So by the time the Ngoni and the Yao had come to finish off the job, because yes, they came to finish off the jobs, it wasn't a great struggle, to be fair. And these are just a few of the ones that we shall look at today. With the Makewana, Afriwetu really did cover her part in the fall of the Maravi Empire earlier this series, in series four, episode five. And as we know, the Makewana was a title and she reigned over her own territory. And in time, she, like other tributary states of the Undi, wanted out. By the 18th century, the Makewanas of the day started to flex and after their falling out with the Kalongo and sending one particular one, sending her troops to fight him, next up, she focused on the Undi. 
She made a bid and was able to free her polity from his dominance. The Undi found that he was no longer able to control or coerce her to be loyal. In the end, though, it was the Ngoni who destroyed and scattered her court as part of their march on the Maravi as a whole. When the other tributary states started to directly trade with the coastal traders and the colonizers, this ate into the Undi's profits as he now no longer had the monopoly over the precious goods such as ivory or even a huge percentage of the wealth from gold or the indentured people. The kingdom's decentralized system of governance also came to be a source of vulnerability which was fully exploited by the subordinate states, the trading nations from the coast and the colonizers. So with the latter, they interfered, becoming more and more involved than just traders who were looking for ivory and then slaves. They had been pushed out by other civilizations, the Shoners, for example, close to the end of the 17th century, and here they had landed on the Undi's shores. The colonizers were greedy for gold, which they had recently discovered as being in abundance in the region, and so they made a beeline for the kingdom. Here they were able to establish themselves and they actually got permission to work the gold mines from the Undi in 1750. When it came to ivory, they decided to break the agreements of trade and rather than follow the normal practice, they started turning to hunt down the elephants for their own ivory. Destroying the delicate balance of nature didn't start recently, my people. The Europeans were doing so long before for profit. So they hired bands of hunters, namely the Chikunda, to do this. This then caused more internal strife for the Undi's confederacy, undermining his powers and denying him the wealth from the tributes, as well as compromise his control over his subordinates. An example of the colonizers using the Chikunda to take over power in the Zimba region and then ceded the Biwa's kingdom when by 1840 he had to submit to their control. This was just an example of the breakup of the Undi's control, and it's another layer of the demise. Other major tributary states such as the Nsenga, Mkanda, and Kachombo soon fell off his authority, and with that came the fact that the tributes also fell short of what used to be sent through. And then, lastly, we have the incoming Goni Eniao. For today, we shall look more at the Ngoni because Afriwetu will cover the Yao in later episodes. So remember to keep it here. But talk about opportune timing. I mean, if anyone ever wanted to take over civilization, this would be it. This fragmentation, this infighting, this foreign interference and a weakened monarch politically and financially, both at the Undi level and further up at the Kolongas level. This doesn't mean to say that the Nguni needed any help. They were a force that were formidable on their own. But this chaos did make it a bit easier to overcome the Undi. Afri were to cover them in series 2 episodes 8 and 9 for the Zulu and series 3 episode 7 for the Ndebele civilization. So please go and have a listen. So they made their presence known circa 1835 and at this time causing the Undi proper stress. But it was later in the 1870s when they truly came into their own and attacked with superior and highly efficient military force. The Undi kingdom didn't stand a chance. 
all the odds were against them and there was no way to beat them. Their Maravi empire was crumbling and the Undi kingdom collapsed with it. Now, before we sound the final drums on this kingdom, let's have a quick look at what else was happening at this time. So what else was going on in the world at this time? The Federal Republic of Central America gained independence from Spain in 1821 and Mexico got independence in 1823. After several rebellions, by 1841, the Federation had dissolved into the independent countries of what we know now as Guatemala, Honduras, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. Between 1804 and 1810, the Fulani Jihad was in Nigeria. In the 1820s, the Punjab War between the Sikh Empire and the British Empire. In the 1820s to 1832, we had the Tasmanian War, which is also known as the Black War, which is a period of violent conflict between British colonialists and Aboriginal Tasmanians in Tasmania from the mid-1820s to 1832. The conflict, which is a war on both sides, claimed the lives of almost 900 Aboriginal people. This caused a near destruction of the Aboriginal Tasmanians and the frequent incidents of mass killings have actually sparked a debate among historians as to if it should be defined as an act of genocide. I think it's a no-brainer. And just to circle back, in 1796, Edward Jenner is said to have administered the first smallpox vaccination. But... That is not the whole story. In fact, Jenner was at the end of what a black enslaved African had figured out in the early 1700s. This man was called Onesimus, and he's the one who shared a revolutionary way to prevent smallpox. So, he told his then slave master in about 1716, something that obviously was not believed, that he knew how to prevent smallpox. He said that he had actually undergone an, in, an operation which had given him something of the smallpox that would forever preserve him from it. And whoever had the courage to use it would be forever fear of the contagion. Now, the operation himself was a little bit gross, but basically it meant that you rubbed the pus from an infected person into the open wound on the arm. And this basically done in a very controlled manner, obviously, the symptoms would then be milder, but it would in itself confer immunity. So, and that's how you could get inoculated against smallpox. And this is what's the start of the study, which then led to the smallpox vaccination. It's always good to read between the lines or before the lines. But as we bring it home, my Afriwatu, yet again, we uncovered a great history and a great civilization. I mean, our ancestors, the Undi, were in a kingdom that lasted over a century. Remember that. This was a civilization that was one of the key trading kingdoms in the region with Africans and Arabs and the Europeans. And it was 
thriving. It's one that expanded rapidly and maintained its hold and was a force in a giant, holding her space within the larger Maravi Empire. The past two episodes on this kingdom were really just scratching the surface. And what has been shared is such a summarized, summarized version because at every turn I was taken in through richer, deeper culture and history, but there's never enough time to cover all of it. But as you all know, Afriwetu is here to raise your curiosity, to dig deeper. So please do just that. And until next time, Mubarakiwe! Soga, undi soga. <laughs>